We're going to learn about what it is to fear God. We're going to learn what it is to walk filled with the Spirit. And the only people that can walk filled with the Spirit are those who have the Spirit. And the only people that have the Spirit are people who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Saved by grace. Unmerited favor. Undeserved. But that undeserved favor cannot be received until one realizes that he's undeserving. That's what it is to be poor in spirit. And one cannot be or come to the place of realizing that he's poor in spirit unless he responds to the prompting work of God himself to bring him to the place of realization that you are a sinner and that you are on your way to hell and that the only saving grace there is is the finished work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, you're able to walk filled with the Spirit when you come to that place. Amen? And that's right where we left off last week. Mark read verses 18 to 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. And we looked at verses, well, we looked at verse 18 two weeks ago in detail. Last week we looked at verses 19 and 20. Today we're going to spend most of our time in verse 21. So we want to open with a little bit of a review. We see here in these verses that there's three effects described as a result of being filled with the Spirit. The first effect is very musical. We looked at that last week. It's very musical. Look at verse 19. As you walk filled with the Spirit, what happens? Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to whom? To the Lord. To the Lord. You know, my deep concern for the church today, if you don't know, is many things, but there's much too much shallowness in regard to the holiness of God in worship today. Much too much shallowness. There's a lot of supposed worship going on in churches today, but it doesn't regard God as being holy. And if you've visited any number of churches today that are popular and they want to be very contemporary, you'll realize if you listen to the lyrics that are being sung... God's not revered as holy. Man is exalted. So there's a lot of nice songs being sung with nice emotions, nice, you know, nice feelings being expressed, nice feelings being felt, pleasant thoughts being thought, without a genuine acknowledgement of the holiness of God. God is holy. He's a holy God. And my prayer is that this church will always realize and understand that we serve a holy God. We read in, a, in Hebrews this morning that he's a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. He's not your buddy. Amen? Worship that exalts the holiness of God is very biblical. You just read the Psalms. God is holy. Worship today has become much more sensationalistic. It's become very psychological rather than theological. And if we're going to sing the words of God, they ought to be theologically sound. Amen? So we always want the lyrics of what we sing to reflect the holiness of God. And one who's filled with the Spirit, verse 19, speaks in one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. They almost they have a melody in their heart. A Spirit-filled Christian, as we learn, just kind of walks along humming or, or whistling a life that reflects intimacy with God. Can't contain it. One who walks filled with the Spirit, of which is a command, by the way, for the believer to be filled with the Spirit, out of that Spirit-filled Christian comes psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's, it's responsive because of His grace. So a lot of songs today are probably more what I call fleshual than spiritual. Very fleshy. It stimulates the flesh. It, it stimulates 
me. I want to walk out of here feeling good. I want to have the hairs on my neck standing up rather than understanding I'm here to worship God. You see? And as Christians, we're here to worship the living God. The second effect of a spirit-filled walk is verse 20. Giving what? Giving thanks how often? Always. Always. Here we have the spirit-filled life is walked out in or lived out with gratitude. Gratitude. A heart of thanksgiving. Always and for everything. Giving thanks to God in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father. The word gratitude and the word grace... Both of those words come from the same root word, gratitude and grace. Same root word. So if you've experienced the grace of God, should we not have a grateful heart for everything? And if you're a Christian, you've received the grace of God, His unmerited favor. And from out of that, a spirit-filled life will flow thanksgiving. Thanks for everything. That's, that's Romans 8.28, lived out. All things work together for the what? The good of those who what? Love God and are called according to His purpose. God is sovereign. Not everything in our life is good. Amen? If you're a Christian and you're a true spirit-filled Christian, life out there just isn't going to be all that pleasant. Okay? But pleasure and happiness are two different things. You can find pleasure in sin. Amen? We all know that. There's pleasure in stimulating our flesh, but there's not joy or happiness in it, I'll tell you that. And for the Christian, it will lead to deep sorrow because you will grieve the Holy Spirit rather than walking filled with the Spirit. And as a Christian, you'll be grieved. The words think and thank, those are two words that also come from the same root word. And if we would think more with an eternal perspective, as declared through the Scriptures, guess what will flow out of us more? Thanksgiving. If we understood grace and the price that was paid for that grace, we would have gratitude. And if we would think more with the mind of God, rather than what a lot of contemporary Christianity and contemporary evangelicalism teaches today, that God wants to be your buddy and make you happy, we would be much more thankful by seeing things from his perspective, which is biblical. See, gratitude, you know what it aims to overcome, guys? Self-pity, pouting, bitterness, grumbling, and discouragement. If we're thankful for everything, always, seeing God... Or seeing from God's perspective, you won't have a tendency to be bitter. You won't have a tendency to grumble, to complain, to throw pity parties. All of those things are a result of being filled with the Spirit. So you may ask the question, how? How do I get filled with the Spirit? Amen? We all want to know that. How do I get filled with the Spirit? Well, to understand, we have to go back and look at the paralleling contrast in verse 18. Look what he says first off. He says, he gives a command, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation. Now, how does one not get drunk? You don't drink. Amen? If you don't want to get drunk, don't drink. Very simple. If you don't want to be filled with sensationalism, don't feed on it. There's a lot of teaching today that just feeds from pulpits today sensationalism, emotionalism, things which are unbiblical. So you get people worked up in a frenzy, and they walk out exhorted and built up with this false sense of, of the knowledge of God, which is no knowledge of God at all. All it is is physical Fleshual stimulation. So if you don't want to be filled with that, don't feed on it. Don't take it in. We want to test all things in light of what? The Word of God. All things. Whatever anyone says from any pulpit, we must test those things in light of Scripture. And if we don't know the Scriptures, if we don't know what it means by what it says, we will have a very difficult time testing what he has to say from his pulpit, whoever he is. And if you're watching up Christian 
television, you'll realize there are a lot of terrible teachers who have large, large followings. And if you know the Word of God, you will know he's not a man of the Word. Not a man of the Word. Many. How do I get filled with the Spirit? It's a command. You know how? You drink Him in. You drink in Jesus Christ. Drink in lots of Him. You want to get addicted to something? Get addicted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Get addicted to His Word. And you will be filled, overflowing. Jesus said, mark this, John 7.37, Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow streams of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit. Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12.13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink in one Spirit. Here we have the body of Christ joined together. One small body of Christ. One local assembly of a worldwide body of true believers. And God knows those that are His. Many profess Christ, but not all are Christ. We know that in the last day, Jesus said Himself, Many will come in that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in Your name? And He'll say, Depart from Me, you who practice iniquity. I never knew You. You claim to have known Me. I don't know You. Notice they say, Lord, Lord. Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Drink in the Spirit. How do I drink in the Spirit? Romans 8.5 answers that question. Romans 8.5. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. So what does it mean to set our mind on the things of the Spirit? What does that mean? Colossians 3 answers that question. Verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. It means seeking and directing your attention towards being very concerned about the things of the Spirit, which is to be very concerned about the things of God Himself. And you know what God is concerned about? What he's already written. Because as he says of his word, I have exalted my word to that of my own name. This is it. This is it. His everlasting word. Things of the Spirit. It means being concerned about Philippians 3.19. Mark this. Philippians 3.19. Referring to the enemies of the cross of Christ. All those who are non-Christians. To the enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. In whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. It's the enemies of God who are consumed with the things of the world. You know, and it's sad as to the number of Christians today who profess Christ, their concern, they are consumed with things of the world. They're consumed with making top dollar. They're consumed with their career. They're consumed with everything Hollywood is spitting out. Entertainment. Is there anything wrong with those things in and of themselves? No. But if I'm consumed by things and I profess Christ, now I'm serving another God. Because you cannot serve God and man, Jesus said. You will end up loving one and hating the other. Amen? People like that, if they're Christians, they will not and cannot be filled with the Spirit if they're concerned about things of the world. Come on now, amen? Cannot. It's impossible to be filled with the Spirit as a believer if I'm consumed with things of the world. 
There's no place for a Christian to be dwelling on such things. Because Philippians goes on to say in the next verse, verse 20, our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. For which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Spirit-filled life, it's a command. It will be walked out in song. It will be walked out in thanksgiving. And the bottom line is this, guys, spirit-filled life. You will be consumed by whatever you're consumed with. You will be consumed by whatever you're consumed with. If you're consumed with greed, you'll be consumed by greed. If you're consumed with pride, which is basically be consumed with yourself, you'll be consumed by yourself or by pride. Amen? If you're consumed with alcohol, fear, hate, bitterness, you'll be consumed by alcohol, fear, hate, or bitterness. And I've talked to plenty of guys who fall into fornication. The reason they are consumed by fornication is that they've been consumed with fornication. And a Christian can't be filled with the Spirit if they're consumed with something other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, who is the Logos, the Word, the Word, the very living Word of God. Paul said this in Galatians 6-7, speaking about being consumed by and with things. Paul said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit reap everlasting life. You sow to the flesh, you reap things of the flesh. And, and that's basically what I just said. If you're... If you reap, if, if you sow to greed, alcohol, fear, hate, you will reap greed, alcohol, fear, hate. Same thing. So for the believer, we're to direct our enthusiastic attention to the teachings of God himself. And guess who he spoke through here? Paul. So we need to be given to the teachings of the apostles, to the teachings of the word himself, Jesus Christ. And all the epistles are, the letters in the New Testament are a commentary on the gospel words of Jesus Christ. Revealed through the Gospels. That's what it is to be spirit-filled. Jesus himself, his feet on me, he said. He said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Look at chapter 3, verse 19 of Ephesians. Remember Paul's prayer? Paul prayed back in chapter 3, verse 19, that we would know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of who? With the fullness of God. Look at the end result. To him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Who's that power? The Holy Spirit, God himself, who resides in the believer. It's not some outside power source. It's God himself, the Holy Spirit, third person of the Godhead. It's not an it. Him. He. That's why we can grieve the Spirit. You, you, you can't grieve something that's an it. We grieve a person. And as a believer, when we're consumed with things of the world, idolatry sets in and we grieve God himself. We grieve the Spirit. He wants us to know knowledge, to have knowledge, to be filled with the fullness of God. That's a little review. Okay? And then we move in now to effect number three of a Spirit-filled life. A Spirit-filled life, the effect of a Spirit-filled life is walked out in, look at this, submission. Submission, chapter 5, verse 21. Submitting to one another in the what? In the fear of God. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Submission. The effect of this mindset is very giving. Submission is very giving. It's a mindset that gives. Gives of self. You know, many are offended by the word submission today. Even people in the church. They're offended by the word submit. Because they think that it points to a weakness. The Greek word for submit 
It's a military term, and it means to line up under. To line up under. Military term. You fall into rank in the military, amen? You have those in authority over you. You know what you do when you stand to someone in authority over you who's an officer? What do you do? You salute. Was that a correct salute, military guy? Submission to authority. To line up under. I want to give you a few examples of where this word is used in Scripture elsewhere. It's used in Romans 8, verse 7, and it's used in submitting to God's law. It says this, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Romans 8, 7. Unbelievers are unable to line up under God's word. There is no submission there. If you're an unbeliever today, you are not able to line up under God because you do not have the Spirit of God. And there's one thing that will keep you from submitting to the Lordship of Christ is your pride. And we'll learn later, it's not that you can't believe, it's that you won't. The word is also used of everything being subjected under Christ's feet. Mark this, Ephesians 1.22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him to be the head over all his church. You know why Jesus is the head of the church? And we're the body? Because it's his. We're his if you're the church. He's the head. Jesus is the head. Everything and everyone is lined up under Christ. He's the sovereign head of the church. And if you think for a minute that you're not under his authority, then you're simply in rebellion. And guess what we do when we fall, find ourselves in rebellion? What do we do if you're a Christian? Confess and repent quickly, swiftly. Right? Because we read this morning, if you were here for the reading, in Hebrews chapter 12, what does God do to those he loves who are in rebellion? He chastens them. Just as a father who loves his son, when he's disobedient, will chasten his son because he loves him. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord, Hebrews 12 says. This is a word that's also used in being subject to the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with what? Humility. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The church is to line up under church leadership. Submission. You know, submission is a fundamental attitude of spiritual maturity. Submission is a fundamental attitude of spiritual maturity. So if you find yourself not willing to submit, then you're a Christian, you're simply spiritually immature. Spiritually immature. We want to honor God, therefore we must submit in all areas of which he's called us to submit. Amen? He's the head. He's the head. We're given many details. I mean, verse 21 says, submit to one another in the fear of God. He goes on from verse 22 all the way into chapter 6 until we get to the whole armor of God with examples of submission that have to do with relationships, family, bosses, co things like that. Children to parents and parents to children and wives to husbands, husbands to wives. So he's going to go into detail. We're going to get into deep detail as to the family structure according to Scripture in the weeks to come. And then we'll wrap up with the whole armor of God after the new year somewhere, and we'll probably finish up in March. That will be a year in Ephesians. Jesus himself, you got a problem with submission? Jesus himself, by example, submitted himself. We're talking about the God of glory here. Holy, righteous God who has every right to snuff us out like that. Submitted himself. Lowered himself. He stepped out of glory. Don't forget, Jesus is not some man we made God. He's God who became a man, which means he lowered himself. Philippians 2.5. Listen to this. Philippians 2.5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, robbery to be equal with God, but 
made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This is a theological term known as the kenosis. The kenosis, the doctrine of Christ's self-emptying. He didn't empty himself of deity. Not one element of his deity was lost when he became a human being. All he did was veil his deity. He was always fully God, fully man while he was on the earth. Fully human, fully God, from the time he came out of the womb until the time that he died on the cross and said, it is finished, was always fully man, was always fully God. We're called to be submissive to one another. We see it in the verse. Be submissive one to another. And I want to show you a perfect illustration of this, and I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. This gives just a, a detailed description, a strong supporting passage of Scripture that speaks about submission. We're just going to kind of walk through it quickly. We'll even get to it next week. We'll look at it more in detail next week also. When we get to the text about wives submitting to the husband, don't get too bowed up, gentlemen, because you have a lot of responsibility as a man of God. So don't start pointing your finger at your wife too swiftly. Amen? First Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, who's the beloved? All the saints of the Lord, those who are redeemed, those who have been born again of the Spirit, those who are saved from the pit of hell because of the grace of God by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the beloved. I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Then when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Okay, this is a great admonition, amen? With this great admonition, he moves now into roles of submission. Okay, now he's just admonished us. Look at therefore. You see that? Here's the admonition. And then in verse 13, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for whose sake? For the Lord's sake, whether to king as supreme or to the governors. Here we have that military term again, to line up under. You see that? God's people are to live in a humble and submissive way before unbelievers, to the king, who's ever in authority. It doesn't say to the king or to the president who serves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. It says to whoever, whomever is in that position, submit yourself. To governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. There's people in positions of leadership in our country that are going to send individuals to certain places for certain purposes, and we're to submit ourselves under their leadership. Obedience to every institution of civil and social order. It's only when the government commands us as believers to do that which is contrary to the written word of God do we oppose it. That's it. For this, verse 15, is the will of who? This is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. There's the purpose. It's, the purpose is silence. Submission silences them. The end result is silencing them. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. See, we're free in Christ, amen? As a believer, you are free in Christ. But freedom in Christ is no license for rebellion or self-indulgence, period. Period. It's no license for self-indulgence. It's no license to go sin freely. Paul said... In talking about the depth of grace in Romans chapter 5, he knows that some fool, as I said, would come up and say, well, 
If God's glorified by shedding His grace upon us and because we're evil, let's sin more so He dispenses more grace so that He's glorified more. Paul says in chapter 6 of Romans, what shall we say then? Shall we sin more that grace may abound? Certainly not. Don't be a ridiculous fool. I added that one. That's basically what he's saying. Look what he goes on to say. Servants, be submissive to your own masters with all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering, wrongfully. We're to submit even if you have a harsh employer. We're to submit if you have a harsh employer. We're to submit if you have a bad boss. For whose sake? For God's sake. Verse 20. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? Okay? In other words, if you're rebuked for something you've done wrong, so be it. But when you do good and suffer, what about that? He said, you may, be, you may be doing good and get no recognition at your job. You may be going above and beyond, and they recognize someone who's evil and corrupt. Nonetheless, because you're a Christian, he says, submit. If you take it, but, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before who? Before God. Whose are you? God's. You don't need to complain about your boss, gossip about your boss. If he's a harsh boss, submit to him. Unless he's trying to get you to do evil, of course. He wants you to shade the books and things like that. No, you don't go there. But if he doesn't treat you well, submit, nonetheless. Or go find a new job and get two weeks' notice. And serve to your fullest, best capacity until your two weeks are up. Amen? He's saying it. It's here. What do we do? <laughs> Amen? For to this you were called, because Christ, check it out, also suffered for us, leaving us a what? An example. That you should what? Follow his steps. Who, by the way, guys, committed no sin, verse 22, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Okay? Contrast that with your life and my life. We've all committed sin and deceit has been found in our mouth. Amen? So if he's our example and we're to submit to him, he's the head of the church, we're his, we're to submit. We're not to get all bowed up. It's become my famous line lately. Verse 23, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, him the Father is the just judge, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In other words, Jesus suffered unjust punishment, without retaliation and without threats. When he was reviled, he reviled not in return personally. When he was spit on, he didn't spit back. When he was falsely accused, he didn't strike back. He was like a lamb that was silent, led to what? The slaughter. When God the Father was misrepresented, Jesus turned the temple, the tables of the temple, and all the stuff on the tables of the temple upside down. You want to get angry about something? Get angry when God is misrepresented. How about that, brothers and sisters? Come on. Get angry about that. Get angry when there's false teaching going on. Strike up. Point it out. That's what we need to be getting fired up about. We get fired up if someone cuts us off, flips us off. Doesn't treat us good. Christ suffered, amen? So, a little bit about submission. Jesus took, Jesus took the suffering. The profound and significant result of it, you know what it was? Redeemed souls. Redeemed from the pit of hell. That's all we deserve, you guys. If you think you deserve anything more than that, rethink. We are here because of His grace. We are here in response to His grace. 
We are rejoicing over His grace. We are rejoicing over the fact that He was led as a lamb to the slaughter without a word. God, who lowered Himself to become a man, He is holy. He is holy. And He ought to be revered as holy. Let's not be flippant about our Lord and Savior. Amen? Let us not be flippant. Therefore, we're to submit to one another. Back to Ephesians. If you would, please, turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. Spirit-filled life is walked out in song. A spirit-filled life is walked out in thanksgiving. Always, for everything. Verse 21, a spirit-filled life is walked out in submission to one another. In what? In fear. The fear of Christ. This word, this word fear, is a covenant uh, word in the Old Testament. And it's a characteristic of those who love God. This word fear, a characteristic of those who love God. Fear and love are used synonymously with allegiance and obedience to God. Fear and love, synonymous with allegiance and obedience to God. It's a term that is translated to alarm or frighten. To alarm or frighten. The King James translates it to be exceedingly afraid. Terror. Words like reverence. Words like respect are too weak to capture the tone that's intended here. So we're to submit to one another in the trembling fear of God? Well, wait a minute. What about His love? Reverence describes a sense of awe. Amen? Reverence describes a sense of awe as we perceive the majesty of God as we ought. Reverence describes awe. Godly fear, on the other hand, can be a sense of, here it is, intimidation. A sense of intimidation when we see, check it out, His power and His holiness. His power and His holiness. Who, again, Hebrews 12, Jesus, He is a consuming fire, which refers to His power to destroy and His holy reaction to sin. That's the context of what we read this morning in Hebrews 12. Fear. Terror. You know, it seems a problem for Christians today. To get away from this idea that Jesus was some passive, timid, mild man who walked through the world just simply making people feel good. Amen? Mark Driscoll, he's a pastor up in Washington State, in writing an endorsement for a book that Pastor John Piper wrote entitled, What Jesus Demands from the World, he says this. He said, in this book you will hear from a Jesus who is more than a soft-spoken, effeminate, marginalized, Galilean hippie peasant in a dress who has a peculiar notion that he alone is Lord. Couldn't have said it better myself. You know, there's this t-shirt mentality today that declares Jesus is my homeboy. He is not anybody's homeboy. If you have one of those, burn that thing, amen? Would you please burn that and please never wear it here. I said yesterday, if I ever saw one, I'd pull this paint gun out that I have behind here and I'd shoot paint all over it. Jesus is nobody's homeboy. There's such a flippancy today within the church as to the holiness of Jesus Christ. And we're called to submit to one another in fear of Jesus Christ. In fear. You know, when Jesus was on earth, there was this overwhelming intimidation when people came face to face with the God, with God incarnate. Intimidation. You know, I think we've drawn this picture over the years that, you know, Jesus just did that. He just, you know, patting people on the back and he was this effeminate, rosy cheek. Little sissy, that is not the picture of Jesus that you ought to have. If you read the scriptures, you won't, you won't have that picture formulated in your head. It doesn't depict him as that. Tradition has, unfortunately. The, the normal reaction to people in Jesus' day, believers and skeptics, was fear. Fear. Jesus traumatized people. You know, you might be sitting here, well, whoa, wait a minute now, big fella. You're getting a little overboard. Let's look at some scriptures, amen? Let's go to the Word. Okay, now mark these down. I'm just, you just mark these down. I'm going to blast through these. You can look at them later. 
Now, there's a lot of things that contributed to that intimidation, okay? And in, the first thing that was astonishing to people was his knowledge, okay? And in John 7:15, the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? Even as a child in the temple, remember Luke chapter 2, verse 40, 20, uh, 47? All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Can you imagine listening to a 12-year-old kid just dumbfound the religious leaders of the day? Amazing. His knowledge was astonishing. He challenged and frustrated the very people that tried him, the religious, religious leaders of the day. In John 18:23, Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. Come on, bring it on, is what he was saying. His wisdom was superhuman. Matthew 22:46, And no one was able to answer him a word. Now check this out. From that day on, there's no one that would dare question him anymore. Not a word. He taught with absolute authority. And Matthew, remember Matthew 7, 28, 29? When Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes, not as the teachers of the day. He didn't refer to the Talmud. He didn't refer to the traditions of the religious leaders of the day. He spoke with absolute heavenly authority. To say that Isaiah in this, he said, most surely I say to you that today the scripture is fulfilled in your ears. That authority led them to want to push him off the edge of a cliff. Intimidating. His words, his words, matchless. John 7.46. The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. Remember they used to accuse Jesus of being a, a glutton and a wine-bibber? Remember that? They could never deny his purity, although they continually accused him. In John 8:46, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words, therefore you do not hear. You know why? Because you're not of God. You're a little intimidating, amen? You know who else was intimidated? By Jesus Christ? Demon. Demons. Mark 1.24. Mark this down. Mark 1.24. Here's a demon speaking. Jesus of Nazareth, did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Mark 3.11. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him, cried out saying, you are the Son of God. In Luke 8.28. What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Demons whose end is hell, guaranteed, feared, and tremble at Christ. And yet Christians today are just so flippant about His holiness. They just roll in and roll out. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus, you know. As long as we just say the name Jesus, you know, we're just acknowledging Him. Bull. His works were without question of Almighty God. Rabbi Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In John 9.33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Remember when he cleared, um, healed the blind man? His power was amazing. It was supernatural. He fed thousands. He healed the lame. He healed the leprous. He healed the blind. He healed the deaf. He healed the mute. He spoke to a fig tree, and it immediately withered up and died. You know why? Because it had no fruit on it. He was hungry. And he went to a tree that from a distance looked so good, it had all the leaves on it, and it looked good, and it looked pleasant, and you just assume that when you get to it, it's going to have fruit. He cursed it, and it died. A lot of Christians are like that. they got a lot of leaves. They say all the right stuff. they got the big Bible. they got the pen. 
They got their paper, and their life in no way reflects the holiness of God, which has purchased them out of the pit of hell, period. If as many people were really Christians in America as that claim to be born-again Christians, America wouldn't be the same. He was intimidating. That's why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. They couldn't handle the intimidation, brothers and sisters. Well, now you'll sit here, perhaps, and you'll say, well, okay, you just talked about people being in terror, but that was all the enemies of God. Those were the skeptics. Those were the enemies. Let's look at his friends. Look at Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Mark chapter 4. Remember the big Jesus in the boat? He's sleeping. He's napping. He's in a deep sleep. They're in a treacherous storm. The disciples, remember that? On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, verse 35, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him, they took him along in the boat as he was. And on the other, and all the other little boats were also with him. And a great storm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. And he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he arose, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Verse 41, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey? So he calms the storm, and then he rebukes them for unbelief. Can you imagine that? And they were in terror, fear. John MacArthur makes reference of this, the little story. And he says this, and I quote, it's far more frightening to face the holiness of God inside your boat than to have a storm outside your boat. End quote. Amen? Woo! Come on now. I'll read it again. It's far more frightening to face the holiness of God inside your boat than to have a storm outside of your boat. We fear everything in life, man, and we don't fear the holiness of God. And if you don't fear the holiness of God, you won't be filled with the Spirit. And if you're not filled with the Spirit, you won't walk in obedience. Jump over to Mark chapter 5. Look at verse uh, 25. Remember the woman who, who, who had a blood flow for 12 years? Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately, Mark uses that word, I don't know how many times, numerous times, immediately, 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 all through Mark. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crown and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had touched who had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Verse 33, her response, trembling, is the same word used in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. That same word is used to describe the shaking of Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments. Heavy, huh? The friends of Jesus, the redeemed, trembled trembled in fear. Do you, believers, serve in submission to one another? Do you desire to serve in the submission of one another? Do you desire to walk in obedience and the fear of Jesus Christ? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves regularly. 
Or do you have a cavalier attitude? Do you resist authority? Do you enjoy confrontation? Confrontation can be good. I love confronting false teaching, but I don't love confrontation for the sake of confrontation. Because if you don't, if you do have a cavalier attitude, if you do resist authority, you likely don't fear Christ. Amen? You just likely don't fear Christ. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We'll see quite an illustration here. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, great, wonderful prophet of God. In the king, in the year that King Uzziah died. Okay, Uzziah was a king. He began in the fear of the Lord. He began with a love for the Lord. He was commended for his love for the Lord. Later on, as he served, as he became a mighty king, pride set in. And one day he goes into the temple, and he wants to burn incense unto the Lord. He goes into the temple, and 80 priests go, whoa, 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 big fella. God has not ordained you for this purpose. This is our role. Okay, you're stepping out of bounds. Even though you're the king, you're stepping out of bounds. He did it anyway. And as soon as he did it, leprosy broke out on his forehead. He was a leper from that day until the day he died. He had to be isolated in the whole nine yards. And he died. So, he dies. They go into national mourning. Isaiah's probably not only mourning as part of this nation, but also personally. So he goes to the temple in that year. And you know what he saw? Something he wasn't expecting. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. There you see humility of angels who are in the glory of God who have never fallen and have never sinned. Covering their face, not to look upon the full, complete glory of God. Covering their feet, God said to Moses at the burning bush incident, what did he say? Take off your shoes, you are on what? Holy ground. And with two they flew. That'll be interesting to see, won't it? And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Here we have the trihagion. Holy, holy, holy. God, holy, holy, holy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Whose glory? His glory. God's a debtor to no man, by the way, brothers and sisters. Amen? God is a debtor to no man. He chose, by the way, to have mercy on you. You know what you deserve and I deserve? Hell. Moses and Pharaoh, Romans chapter 9, you know what they both deserve? Hell. God chose to have mercy on Moses. The posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, you know what the only response to this brother was? Woe is me, for I am undone. If undone means to become unraveled at the scene. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of an unclean people. In the midst of people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a live coal, which he had taken, with the tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth with and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. You've been cleansed. You've been purified. You'll never be judged for your sin again, ever, if you're a believer here today. Purified. We're going to take the bread and the cup today, representing and remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is a time for self-examination. You fear God? You fear Jesus? Or is he your buddy? We are the friends of God. We've been made the friends of God. That doesn't mean we don't revere him as holy and fear him as holy and submit out of the fear of the Lord. Amen? Verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. 
And he said, go and tell this people. Now watch this, guys. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. You know what he's saying? Look, Isaiah, you want to go? I'll send you, but here's what's going to happen. For decades... You are going to preach to my elect Israel. For decades you are going to preach to them. And guess what the response is going to be? Nothing but rebellion. Will you still go? Do you fear me enough to go? No matter what the results? Do you fear me enough to go? Will you take my holiness and go and be holy to a people who hate me, who are idolaters? And you won't have masses of people crawling to the altar so that you can say 8,000 people came to Jesus? And you stirred them up emotionally? No. Nothing's going to happen. Turn to John 12. John chapter 12. Okay. To set the stage, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. A dead man. In the grave, he calls out. Amen? Miracle? Power? Authority? Yeah? Because of the testimony of Lazarus... And the fact that Jesus rose him from the dead, they get together, all the religious hypocrites, and they want to kill Jesus and Lazarus because on account of the Jesus resurrecting Lazarus, people are beginning to believe. Jesus goes on again to predict his death on the cross to his disciples. In verse 37, look at this. But although he had done so many signs before them, they would not believe in him. Verse 38. In order that, the word of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe because. You know what? They would not believe in verse 37. And when they would not believe in verse 37, verse 39, what? They could not believe. Because they continually resisted and would not believe, the end result was God's wrath to where they could not believe. God's judicial wrath. His judicial wrath of turning one over to themselves. Okay, check it out. Verse 39, Therefore they could not believe because of Isaiah. Again, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. Is that God's desire? Yes! These things Isaiah said when he saw His glory and spoke of Him. The he of verse 37 is the him of verse 41, and the him is verse 41 is the God of glory of Isaiah 6, Jesus Christ in his glory, man. Come on now. It's Jesus in his glory. That's who he's talking about. That's who he's making reference to. And we've been saved by him who came out of glory, took on humanity, lowered himself to death, and we ought to and are commanded to be filled with his spirit and to submit one to another in the fear of him. That's the least we can do, brethren. Amen? That's the least. The least. I want to close with a writing out of my recommended recommendation of the day. Book purchase. The Holiness of God by great living theologian today, R.C. Sproul, which is for sale. R.C. Sproul makes reference of Jonathan Edwards, America's greatest theologian. And Jonathan Edwards probably preached the most famous sermon in America that was entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You now Sproul says this. Sproul says, Sermons stressing the fierce wrath of a holy God 
aimed at impenitent human hearts do not fit with the civic meeting hall atmosphere of the local church today. Gone are the gothic arches. Gone are the stained glass windows. Gone are the sermons that stir the soul to moral anguish. Ours is an upbeat generation with the ascent on self-improvement and a broad-minded view of sin. Okay? Now he goes on and he gives a segment here of this message from Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And this is Edwards speaking now in his sermon. He said, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is a purer eyes than to, to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful venomous serpent in our eyes. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did in his, did his prince. And yet, it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the, into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, yesterday, that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God provoking His pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of t attending His sol solemn worship. Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. That's just one segment of Edward's sermon. And here's what Sproul goes on to say in regard to that sermon. How do we react to Edward's sermon? Does it provoke a sense of fear? Does it make us angry? Are we feeling like a multitude of people who have nothing but scorn for any ideas about hell and everlasting punishment? Do we consider the wrath of God as a primitive or obscene concept? Is the very notion of hell an insult to us? If so, it's clear that the God we worship is not a holy God. Indeed, He is not God at all. If we despise the justice of God, we're not Christians. We stand in a position that is every bit as precarious as the one that Edwards so graphically described. If we hate the wrath of God, it's because we hate God Himself. We may protest vehemently against these charges, but our vehemence only confirms our hostility toward God. We may say emphatically, no, it is not God I hate, it's Edwards I hate. God is altogether sweet to me. My God is a God of love. But a loving God who has no wrath is no God at all. He is an idol of our own making as much as if we carved him out of a stone. So as the men prepare to serve us communion, let's rightfully acknowledge the holy God who lowered himself out of glory, became a human being, lived the perfect life in your place, believer, and died your death. This kind of fear, you guys, is the foundation, the foundation of praise and obedience. And in Ephesians, to close up here, let us not forget the one who's feared, amen? In Ephesians chapter 5, Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. is the same one who, in chapter 5, verse 2, 
said, Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. You're holy only because of his holiness that's been imputed to you. So, if you're not a believer here today, if you want to become a believer, you must choose to die to self. And please do not take communion if you have not submitted your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You must die to self. You must repent and call on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. It's not an easy road. It's a difficult road because it's, it's straight and it's narrow. There's one turnstile and it's Jesus Christ and you can't bring your baggage of your worldly thinking with it. You must repent. That's the real gospel. Jesus said, broad is the road and wide is the gate that leads to destruction. How many go that way? Many. Straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life. How many make it in that way? Very few. This pride is the element that keeps us from humbling ourselves before a holy God who is a God of wrath. And the most wicked form of God's wrath that has ever been unleashed throughout all the scriptures, not in the Old Testament, it's in the New. And all of the wrath of God the Father, who is a righteous judge, unleashed his wrath on his Son so that you and I can sit here today in reverence, in fear, in awe because of what he did on your behalf. That's why we do what we do right now. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, you are holy. And Lord, I pray that your people here today would not be discouraged by such a message as this, which is authoritative and brings us back to a focus of your holy, reverent right as a God of wrath to do as you please. And you please to so much love us that you sent your son in our place so that he could take all of your wrath and he did it in a submitted fashion. And I pray that we will rightly reflect upon your glorious finished work, knowing that we're covered by the blood, we're made righteous, we can never be more pure than we are in your sight because of the grace that covers us. And I pray that we will remember and take heed this morning as we partake of communion that your body was broken and your blood was shed so that we could have a right standing with the Father. Thank you, Lord. We praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name.